This morning's reading is from Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, which is on page 100, 1,168 in the uh, Bibles. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Now am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. So, oh, that's really loud, or it feels really loud up here. So, I wanted to start today by um, by giving some context to the reading that we've just heard. What was going on in Galatia, where the re- um, the letter was written to, and what made Paul feel that he needed to write it? Um, so, like I said, pretty much everybody universally accepts that Paul wrote this letter. And um, Paul was a Jew, not just any Jew, but an Orthodox Jew. His dad was a Pharisee, or quite likely to be a Pharisee, which would have meant that Paul was probably a Pharisee too, although there's some conjecture, and some people think that he may have been tent builders, tent manufacturers. But he was also Roman, a Roman citizen by birth. And he describes himself from being from the stock of Israel, from my personal favorite tribe, that of Benjamin. And it's believed that when he was fairly young, he was sent to Jerusalem to receive his education at the school of a rabbi whose name I can't pronounce. So apologies. But it's something like Gamma Lil, I think. There we go. You guys are very learned. 
And there, he wouldn't have just learned about the Torah and the Jewish scriptures. He would have learned philosophy and ethics and the classics, a very broad education. And we know that when the movement of Jesus started, he was on the wrong side of it. He was heavily involved in the persecution, the imprisonment and beating of Christians. He was a man to be feared. And we see this at the time of his conversion. When he's on the road to Damascus, uh, he meets with Jesus and he's blinded. And uh, God meets with another man called Ananias at the same time and says, you need to go and heal Paul. You need to go and meet him. And he's like, no. (laughs) I know this man called Paul. I've heard about him and no. But as God tends to get his way, um, he ends up going and heals Paul. And Paul's life is flipped and turned upside down. And after his conversion, we read later on in Galatians that Paul disappears for three years. He goes on kind of like a retreat. Uh, He writes that he goes to Arabia, although some scholars think he may have gone to Mount Sinai. A time of prayer and working out what it is that God wants him to do. And after this three years, he comes out of the desert. And his heart is for taking the word of God to the Gentiles. So you can see, um, so he comes out of the desert and he says this is his heart and he decides to join a mission trip and being led by a guy called Barnabas. And if you open up your Bibles to the very back, you can see the maps. I've been looking at these things since I was kid, like since I was kids, since I was a kid. And you can see that um, I was going to put it up on the slide, but I didn't want people to be distracted too much. But he basically starts by doing a bit of island hopping and then moves up into an area called Galatia in modern-day Turkey. And he kind of wanders around there quite a bit. And the trip is, is a success. The churches are set up all through the region. But there's a bigger story going on at the same time. Because a large proportion of the Jesus followers at this time are Jews. And they lived under the covenants of Abraham and Moses. Now God had promised to make Abraham a great nation, to bless Abraham and make his name great so that he would be a blessing to those who blessed him. He'd also promised to give Abraham's descendants all the land from the Nile to the Euphrates. And this land became known as the promised land. He also promised to make Abraham the father of many nations and of many descendants and to give the whole land of Canaan to those descendants. Now covenants in biblical times were often sealed by the severing or the sacrifice of an animal with the implication that if you broke the covenant, you'd end up like said animal. Now, in Hebrew, the, the verb meaning to seal a covenant it means or translates literally to cut. But this covenant, the covenant with Abraham, wasn't going to be sealed in the usual way with sacrificial animals or even with rainbows. <laughs> it's a far more brutal way. This one was going to be sealed through circumcision. Now, circumcision was to be the permanent sign of this everlasting covenant with Abraham and all of his male descendants, and is known as the Brit Milha. 
But this covenant didn't just stay the same. It was expanded with the Mosaic covenant, and that's not about flaws. (laughs) In this covenant, God promises to make the Israelites his treasured possession among all people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But there were conditions. We know them as the Ten Commandments. Now, these Ten Commandments later got expanded into a complicated, vast array of rules on holiness, on washing, on what you could eat, what you could wear, what plants you could plant where in your fields, how you treated people, how you loved your neighbor. And these rules were lived out by the Jewish people. And as a little aside, on Tuesday evenings, we... um, host um, various small groups and one of them is with a group of young people and um, we've been reading this book and it's teaching us about Jewish kind of culture around the time of Jesus and one of the things that the rabbis would have been doing is because there's so many laws and rules in the Old Testament they would sift through them and they would apportion um, importance to them and rank them and so they would you'd, if you met a new rabbi and so a new rabbi wanders into your village one of the first things you'd ask him is, what's your yoke? Yoke being, what do you think is the most important thing in the Old Testament? Or what are the rules that you stead most by? And the fantastic thing we learn about Jesus is that his yoke is easy. Richard fantastically read out the two things that Jesus sees as the most important in the whole of the Bible. I love it. But anyway, that's a bit of a side. I got distracted. Where was I? These rules are lived out by the Jewish people to the best of their ability. But then things get complicated because Jesus comes along. And the, the, for the Jews, the, their understanding of salvation, their understanding of the kingdom of God comes from this being under and in covenant with God. And that involved circumcision, rules about bacon, rules about what clothes you could wear, and all of those other things. They believed that to be a follower of Jesus, that these things are also implicit, that these came with being a Jesus follower. But Paul didn't see it this way, which is an amazing mindset change for an Orthodox Jew to meet with Jesus and have his entire all of his traditions, everything, gone. He saw that grace was big enough, sufficient enough to work outside of the laws and rules set out by the previous covenants. But what was going on in Galatia for him to have to feel to write this letter? The trip was a success and churches had been set up and were flourishing. But after the trip had ended, groups of people called Judaizers, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right, were providing follow-up, kind of going in after Paul had finished. And um, they were insisting that the new Christians, although they weren't called Christians at the time, Jesus followers, abide by Old Testament covenants especially, but not limited to, circumcision. These people believed, among other things, that a number of the ceremonial practices of the Old Testament were applicable to the New Testament church. 
but they also argued that Paul wasn't even an apostle, arguing that he never met Jesus and that out of a desire to make his, more, his message more appealing and less, more palatable, especially to his male audience, that he'd removed some of, from the Gospels some of the legal requirements. And that's the situation that Paul's writing into. It's messy, it's complicated, and people are confused about what to believe and what's important. They've essentially had one person come through and tell them about the grace of God, and then another group of people come through and tell them that that grace is bound up with laws and rules. But it's also why he opens the letter with what seems an overly defensive manner. But it's because he was being questioned. His authority to preach the gospel was under scrutiny. Paul starts the letter by countering these claims and asserts, asserts, asserts his apostolic authority. He says, Paul, an apostle, sent not by men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. And later he writes, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul wants to make sure that the readers of this letter believe that he is an apostle, not one that met Jesus in the flesh, but one who'd met him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I kind of want to ask two questions. What is the true gospel? But also, is there anything in this situation that kind of can speak to us as a modern day church? So to kind of gain an understanding of what the true gospel was, I'd ask lots of people and um, ask them the question, what would you say the gospel is? And I had lots of different answers. Not one answer was the same. We should really tie it down. <laughs> some were saying, well, it's the four books. Some were saying it's all about sins and atonement and all of those things. And some were saying it was the whole restoration of the planet, good overcoming evil. So I decided to ask the font of all knowledge, Wikipedia. If my theology lecturer could see me, I'd be in so much trouble. <laughs> This is what it says. It says, in, the, in Christianity, the gospel or the good news is the news of the coming of the kingdom of God and of Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection to restore people's relationship with God. It's okay. It's good. Wikipedia does good. <laughs> but I don't see it just as that. For me, my understanding of the gospel is bigger than this. It's it's about not just human restoration. It's about the whole of creation, everything from rocks to animals to tree, everything being restored with God. And it's not just about a transaction. We sin, Jesus dies, we get a ticket to heaven. It's bigger than that. It's about God being involved, wanting to be present with us in creation. It's about the Holy Spirit God's power with us, in us, through us. I get a bit uppity when I start talking about it. <laughs> but I wonder what it means to you. 
How would you describe it if you had, if I was being hip and trendy, I'd say in 140 characters, which would mean nothing to most of It's a Twitter thing. You have like 140 characters to do stuff. Apparently it's cool. I don't know. But if you had a couple of sentences, what would you say was the good news? But the gospel that Paul is sharing is one of grace above works. A gospel where God loved us and creation so much that he sent his son for it, for us. And it doesn't mention circumcision, rules on food. It doesn't mention what crops you can plant or wearing particular things. It doesn't mention rotors, hymns or songs. It doesn't mention where you sit in church. It doesn't mention church. Within a few years, their understanding of God and his plan for creation had changed from being God blessing Abraham's family descendants so that they could bless the world to God blessing the whole of creation. In a few years, about 30 years from the death of Jesus to this kind of about time. They had to rethink deeply held beliefs, things that had been traditions for thousands of years. In 30 years, <laughs> it would have hurt. It didn't happen overnight. There were councils, there were arguments. You can read in the Bible of disciples coming up against each other because they, they, these things are so ingrained. It would have hurt. It would have really hurt to have those conversations about that much change. But it excites me. <laughs> it really excites me. When the church starts to think, <laughs> I can't even put it into words. Because for me, Christianity has never been, and I hope never will be, a stagnant Faith. It's living, it's breathing, it's changing, it's evolving. It has grown and matured with our growing and maturing understanding of God. And be clear, I don't think that God changes. He's always been and always will be loving and kind. It's our understanding of God that evolves from these Jews in the early first century to the reformers in the 16th century to the civil rights movement to the abolishment of slavery to the rights of women in our history the church's history we've quite often been on the wrong side of the story to start with but then like Paul we meet Jesus we have an encounter with him and he opens our eyes and we grow and we learn and we change and we say sorry for the way things were and we move on. The church in the western world is in a really sad place. It's in a difficult place. Now if you are into academia people refer to this as post-Christendom but to be post-Christendom, you have to go through Christendom. So I thought I'd 
try and explain what that means because it's, otherwise it's just some words. The hallmarks of Christendom are that Christendom involved Christianity being at the center of society, being the majority, being settled and feeling secure. And you could easily say that in our country over the last hundred or so years, that has been true for us. We have been the majority religion. We have been at the center of society. Christendom involved Christianity being in a place of privilege and in a position of control. We have lords or bishops get automatic access to the House of Lords. We have vicars able to just walk into hospitals and other places of care. Christendom involved Christianity being involved in maintaining the status quo and operating as an institution. We lacked and we begin to lose our mission focus because we don't have to, because everybody already comes to church. But post-Christendom, which is where we're heading, if we're not already there in places, leaves the church in a very different place, where we're no longer in the center, but we're on the margins. We no longer feel settled, but we are aliens and exiles and pilgrims in a culture that we no longer call home. We lose our privileges, and we become one community among many in a plural society. We have to move from being able to exert our control to having influence through demonstrating our story, through witnessing. We move from maintaining to mission. And hopefully we'd move from being an institution to a movement. Because the world is changing. Our country is changing. I don't know how many of you saw the news this week. Um that a study has recently uh, been published by the Catholic... Oh, I can't remember exactly. I should have written that down. But basically, they did a study of, of faith across England and Wales. And for the first time... Well, I'll give you the numbers. So the proportion of people who would claim to be Christian in England was about 43... I say about. 43.8% is quite specific. <laughs> but the proportion of those who would say they had no religion rose from 25% in 2011 to 48.5. That's almost doubled in five years. It's almost half the population in England and Wales. And for the first time in a really long, long time, we are no longer the major religion in the country. Something has to change. And like the Jewish people at the time of Paul's letter, we have to work out what it is that's important. What, what is it that... <laughs> what's the point? <laughs> what is it that's important and sacred and holy? But also, what's getting in the way? What is it that people are coming to us and thinking, nah, what is it about this that isn't appealing to people? Now, it sounds like a scary process, and it is. <laughs> but it's exciting. 
and challenging, but it's also one that for generations and generations we've been doing as a Christian community. It's nothing that we're not used to. (laughs) We've always been changing and morphing to the culture around us, but trying to keep things holy and sacred and important at the center. I guess the challenge I want to leave you with is what are those things that we do or insist on that stop people meeting with the divine or receiving the good news? But also, what are those non-negotiable elements? What do we have to hold on to? What is it that is holy and sacred? So I'd love it if we could just spend some time being quiet, really. And this isn't going to be a process that's going to be finished in five minutes and we're going to come up with an answer. It's something that we're going to be doing for generations, trying to work out where the movement of God is going and where we can join in, but also working out what's important. What, what have we got? Because obviously we meet with God, but how do we help everybody else meet with God without making it so palatable that we lose what's important? I'm just going to pray and then I'm going to stop talking. Lord, we thank you that you are a gracious and loving God. We thank you for your gospel. And we pray that you're, through your Holy Spirit, you'll inspire us and impassion us to be a generation of change. And comfort us when it hurts, but give us the, the fervor to reach this losing generation. Amen.